0: Used to jump when you And welcome to episode 1035 of Effectively Wild, a Fangrass baseball podcast presented by our Patreon supporters. My name is Ben Lindberg. I'm a writer for The Ringer. And I'm joined by Jeff Sullivan of Fangraphs. Hello. Hi. We have a lot of emails to get to and a bunch of follow-ups because somehow it seems as if no matter what we talk about, there is someone who has a pertinent anecdote (laughs) to relate to us. Do you have anything else you want to talk about before we get into that? No, let's just get into it. Okay. So we've got a Ryan Rayburn story. We've got a trampoline story. We've got a couple (laughs) premature celebration follow-ups. Let me... Start about Ryan Rayburn (laughs) You wrote a post about Ryan Rayburn being the most volatile hitter of all time With some minimums and caveats But basically he's been terrible and great alternating seasons for the past, what, five years or so Mm -hmm. And we got an email from Evan who says A while back, Jeff talked about the volatility of Ryan Rayburn's on-field performance Well, I was bat boy slash clubhouse assistant for the Toledo Mudhens While Mr. Rayburn was a member of the team I also have an example of Rayburn's ability to run so hot and cold. During a game, one of my jobs as bat boy would be to sit along the left field line and grab any foul balls. I also had to play catch with the left fielder. Most left fielders threw at a nice crisp pace, fast enough to remind you they were a pro, but not too fast. When Rayburn played left, you always had to pay very close attention to the game, because if he struck out or left a man on base, he would run out to left field and fire bullets at you. Obviously, I'm not a scout, and I don't know the scouting report on his arm, but he would throw so hard it was scary. Sometimes he even added a little crow hop. They make you wear a batting helmet on the field. I would always take it off between innings because it's so bulky and hot. But when I played catch with Rayburn, I kept the helmet on. Now, if Rayburn was playing well, then his throws were at a nice, comfortable pace. Maybe this is another example of Rayburn's volatility, or maybe he should give relief pitching a shot. (laughs) So beware left field catch person with the cincinnati reds this year if Ryan <laughs> rayburn is not hitting he is apparently a different guy
1: my favorite thing about this is you know i don't know exactly how hard rayburn throws via stat cast but you know the strongest armed outfielders throw like 100 right like aaron mm-hmm. hicks kevin kiermeyer ryan yeah. rayburn probably not quite that high so he's probably in like the 90 to 95 range that's like ryan rayburn Throwing as hard as he can, which, by the way, is how hard the average pitcher throws. Which, what this says to me is that catchers are insane people. I don't know how anybody <laughs> ever grows up and is like, I want to be a catcher. If I go like play catch with a friend and we go to the park, every so often, you know, you start to get confident, you start to be throwing well, and you decide, I want to air it out. And we don't throw that hard. Maybe, maybe <laughs> we scrape like 75 or 80. I don't know. I haven't been measured in a while since probably embarrassing now but like <laughs> 75 is frightening and there are pe- like or molina i was watching him the other day in the in the wbc he was catching edwin diaz edwin diaz is just out there throwing like a casual 99 miles per yeah. hour with insane movement and molina is just back there like i i've Posted a screenshot, but he was just like As Diaz was in his motion Molina had like his forearm resting on his knee And his glove just like down basically on the ground He's just like, like nothing's even happening Like Diaz is out there (laughs) rubbing the ball Not on the rubber, taking his hat off, wiping his forehead It's just, I can't believe That
0: there are any catchers I can't believe that it's not something that you're Forced to do if you're a criminal Yeah, there are many reasons to appreciate catchers But that (laughs) semi-suicidal Impulse is, is definitely one of them All right, we also got a follow up, couple follow-ups about the premature celebration banter we had recently. We were talking about Javi Baez's tag in the WBC and how he was celebrating the out even before he applied the tag. And we had a couple other examples that listeners submitted. And now we've got a couple more. So Rocky mentioned, my favorite premature celebration is Al Albuquerque kissing the ball before throwing to first base to complete the play in the playoffs a few years ago. And this is great. If you want to find it, it's in the MLB.com videos section. Just search for Albuquerque's Big Out. And it's October 7th, 2012. He was pitching against Ioannis Cespedes. And Cespedes grounded back to the mound. Albuquerque gloved it easily, kissed it, and then (laughs) threw it to first. So I think that's a good one. That definitely qualifies. And David mentioned if you watch the Barry Bonds versus Troy Percival home run, In the 2003 World Series, which is a great highlight for other reasons because it's just a flamethrower and bonds at the peak of his powers. The replay shows the umpire actually tossing a new ball to the pitcher before the ball could have possibly left the stadium. It's pretty amazing. I don't know if this qualifies as an early celebration, but it's fun to watch, especially in slow motion. This is actually the 2002 World Series. We're not in the 2003 World Series, but... This is on YouTube. Just search for Bonds hits a monster shot to right field, and it's at the end of the clip. It shows a side view, and Bonds has just unloaded, and you see the umpire take a a new ball out of his pouch and toss it to the pitcher almost immediately, which is uh, a good one. Not a celebration, but but good instant reaction. I'm surprised umpires didn't just flip balls to pitchers more often with Bonds (laughs) to play, just like, you're going to need this. (laughs) right and last follow-up this is from danny and we've got a ton of trampoline feedback from people some people their own personal trampoline injury stories some baseball related some not one guy just sent a picture of his kid in a cast and said (laughs) sky zone as the subject line nothing in the body which is the name (laughs) of a trampoline place (laughs) so we sympathize with that but Danny has a baseball story. He says, growing up, I had a trampoline in my backyard. We fooled ourselves into thinking it was safer by digging a big hole so the bouncy part was right at ground level. But obviously it was still a trampoline. One day, my younger brother had a friend over and we were all bouncing on it together. Me being the older and larger brother, I felt compelled to do the thing where you bounce the smaller people way higher up in the (laughs) air by timing your jump to land just before theirs. I did this successfully, but my brother's friend, who was and still is very small, got absolutely launched much higher than I'd expected. (laughs) When he landed, he came down awkwardly, hands first, and ended up breaking or maybe dislocating a finger. A few years later, this friend of mine turned out to be a pretty good baseball player at my old high school. He was a bit small for a catcher, but he had a good arm and a great batting eye. I ran into him after a game one spring, and he showed me the finger from back in the day. I can't remember if it was his catching or throwing hand, but I believe it was one of his ring fingers. It was one of the most crooked fingers I'd ever (laughs) seen in real life. Basically taking a 30-degree turn to the side between the top two knuckles. Obviously, I felt terrible about it, but he told me it was no big deal, and it didn't affect his playing at all. I wasn't sure whether to believe him or not. Fast forward another few years, and this kid was a way better baseball player than I'd ever expected. Despite being like 5'8 and maybe 160 soaking wet, he was a really good D1 catcher and proceeded to win the freaking Johnny Bench Award as the best catcher in NCAA his junior year. Two years later, he got drafted by the Astros, and now he's a legit MLB prospect with a very crooked finger that I gave to him on a trampoline. I'd like to think maybe this was some kind of rookie of the year incident where the finger gives him some special advantage throwing or catching, but probably not. It's probably just a weird finger. <laughs> and we tried to get the player on the show to talk about his trampoline trauma. He declined for now. We will try again in the future, but he used the... I'm just focusing on the season excuse, which is really great. And I mentioned this to to Dan in the email. That's probably the best excuse a player can use. This happens fairly often with me. If I want to talk to someone for a story, they'll say, oh, I'm just focusing on the season right now. Oh, he's, he's focusing on the season, so he can't talk right now. And it's a Great excuse. It doesn't make any sense, really, because I'm going to talk to you for 10 minutes about a trampoline, and it's going (laughs) to distract you from the season. You're focusing on the season 100% of the time, no time to talk to anyone. doesn't really hold up, but it sounds perfectly reasonable. Can't interfere with his livelihood. He's a baseball player. He has to focus on the season. Who am I to interrupt that person's mission? So. That is a really great excuse. If you're a baseball player, I highly recommend it. You can't even be annoyed about it. And I'm wondering if baseball writers can use that excuse to get out of doing things. Like if I have to do chores or something, uh just focusing on the season. Or like getting out of podcasts. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I guess
1: you, I think you and I would both agree that one of the things that's being emphasized in the modern baseball player is psychological health, correct? Like the soft, mm-hmm. the soft side of the game. Yeah. And I don't know the identity of this This presumably still catching prospect, I could Mm -hmm. probably make a guess, but I'm not going to bother looking it up. But it seems to me that whenever you are a prospect in a major league organization, every season is critical. You are just trying to prove your worth. You are trying to stay positive and dedicated and healthy so that you can prove to your organization you are worth its investment of resources. Clearly, the Astros will need a catcher before too long because Brian McCann is old and I wonder I just wonder if spending 10 or 15 minutes talking about a childhood trampoline incident might sort of bring back up some psychological trauma that might actually (laughs) have a detrimental effect on this player's preparation for the season possible yeah Uh, so I think that it would be a very legitimate excuse (laughs) and I, I feel like honestly with the amount of trampoline related tweets and emails we're getting we've really tapped into something here I think this is this is a platform This is Effectively Wild 2020. We're running on the anti-trampoline platform. And I think that we will run away. We will color
0: the map. Yeah, people have been posting articles in the Facebook group about studies about trampoline injuries exploding. So it definitely does seem like the zeitgeist. You know what we haven't gotten one of? Mm -hmm. We haven't gotten a single message that's like, hey, I really enjoy (laughs) trampolines and that's it. (laughs) That's true. That is true. No trampoline defenders. All right. So I guess we can continue. One quick thing. Neil Weinberg at Fangraphs wrote an article last week about things that he wants either baseball teams or broadcast crews or just people to do to collect data in this data-rich age we live in. There are still some things that aren't being tracked. He tracked back picks last year when a catcher throws behind the runner, and that wasn't something that was being tracked, at least publicly. And most things either are tracked by StatCast or could be tracked by StatCast. So he was trying to come up with some alternatives that wouldn't be. And he suggested things like transcripts of baseball broadcasts, which would be great, but would also take a really long time. And I can understand why that wouldn't be worth the return on investment. But he mentioned that teams should just release their scouting report archives, essentially. So if you are the Tigers and you have scouting grades for the 1995 draft, in his example, He says that would be totally useless to any other team today, but it would be helpful in helping us outside the game evaluate players. And I'm wondering whether you think this is actually something that baseball teams could give up and not suffer any loss at all. There is that Hall of Fame scouting database, which is really great, and it's a cool place where you can go to look up. Some old players and see what scouts thought of them In college or in the minors And it's really interesting and it'd be great if we had that For every player Do you think that that would be a sacrifice For teams? Is there a good reason for them Not to give us all of that information? Could we, I don't know the
1: ins and outs Of it, but could we technically just try to get that data legally using like the freedom of information
0: act (laughs) we just i don't don't think that works with no private baseball team
1: no but we could at least try and i might persuade (laughs) them to just avoid the legal hassle and give it up anyway i would think so okay i haven't thought about this real deeply but we can let's see scouts are around for a long time right so Mm -hmm. their names will be attached to their reports presumably although i guess they wouldn't have to be you could release the data you don't need the scout's identity right yeah you could black it out like some sort of classified document right i think that if you gave it like you know there are there are government documents i'm going to expose my lack of information here but there are government (laughs) documents that are like unsealed after Uh some number of decades right that's just the the course some stuff is still redacted right so if you just redacted like scout names but you said we'll give up everything that's older than 20 years or something Mm -hmm then, I mean, I don't know how much that would do for us from the outside because scouting opinions change or they are extremely subjective and sometimes there are only, like, three people interested in researching that information. But Mm -hmm. I don't know how well it's organized. I don't know if this information is, like, in an internal database. And if it is, that would make it super simple. It's probably not because teams probably didn't fold in scouting reports from 1993 into their, like, Carmine database because Mm -hmm. why would you? So that might not
0: be worth the trouble. Yeah, I mean, one reason why you might, I would think that maybe it's something that could improve a projection system, right? If you have an archive of scouting reports and you can correlate the tools and the grades and the overall future potentials with what those players turned out to be, maybe it's the kind of thing where you could fuse your stats-based projection system and your scouting reports on current players To come up with a more accurate long term projection Mm -hmm. based on past scouting reports and projections. So I would think that would work probably. I don't know because the scouts would be different scouts and you'd have to try to calibrate what their ratings mean and are they liberal graders or conservative graders. But You could do that too. I would think there'd be some benefit there. I don't know how many years you'd need, but probably quite a few to get a long term view of what it means to have an amateur scouting report on a guy that says something. What does that mean for that guy 15 years down the road? So I would think there'd be some value there. And maybe if you give that up, you'd be surrendering that because. Other teams could use your scouting reports to make their system smarter or someone in the public could. Like if you used all of those archives that were released and then you took Eric Longenhagen's scouting grades for current players and you plugged those in and saw what it had meant to past players in the database, then I think you could build something interesting with that. But there would be some benefit to it, just I think in terms of interesting content that we could mine for... Insights into past players and fun posts about how guys got players wrong or got them right really early. I'd love to have access to that, but I'm not sure there would be zero cost to the teams. Yeah, it would. At the
1: very least, it would be a, a hassle for them to maybe organize and release in a coherent way. I don't know how you yeah. would convince them to put their resources toward this end. I think, like any new data source, kind of like the catch probabilities, it's fun to just play with new information just as its own reward i guess Mm -hmm. from our perspective i know you and i are basically just kind of fishing around looking for just topics full stop Mm -hmm. so we want anything to write about this would be interesting but as far as informing the projections goes I think one of the fun things that's also sort of discouraging I guess I have and we've mentioned before I keep a spreadsheet of like team projections that go back to 2005 yeah the sources have changed more recently it's been like FanGraphs projections and some Dakota stuff but the further back I go I'm relying on like old diamond mind projections and like the Sean projection mm-hmm. system that a lot of these older projections came from a uh, replacement level Yankees weblog that used to run like Diamond yeah. Mind projection blowouts every year, which are great. I used mm-hmm. to really look forward to those posts. In any case, one of the interesting artifacts that I noticed is that over time, over the I have 12 years of information The team projections haven't really gotten any better, which is Mm -hmm. weird considering how much more I think we think we know about how baseball works now relative to 10 or 12 years ago. Like the Mm -hmm. most accurate, just based on correlation coefficients, the best single season projections were made in 2007. Now, granted, 2016 was second best. However, 2015 was the worst. You might remember that 2015 was like a backwards ass baseball season where (laughs) I'm pretty sure... At least at the halfway mark, I'm pretty sure that if you bet the opposite of all of the American mm-hmm. League projections, you would have been more accurate. Yeah. So that, I mean, there's just no ways you can never control for. But the projections are not; they don't seem to be getting better, which is fascinating. I don't know how to go any deeper on that right now, but mm-hmm. it's uh, it's either it's either humbling because we've made all these advances, except that we haven't. Or it's encouraging because even when we had so little information in 2005, we were doing okay. So I'm not sure, but I would hesitate to ever suggest that anything that we learn is actually going to make that meaningful of a difference in the projections, because it turns out that the projections can be only so good because humans are to a great extent, very unpredictable.
0: Yeah. And I bet another way you could look at that is just to compare to Marcel, the most basic projection system, which doesn't even factor in most of the stuff that the other more complex systems include. I would think that probably relative to Marcel, the other systems haven't gotten much better, if at all, over that span. I know that the most recent projection review of 2016 projections that beyond the box score had Marcel very close and competitive and in some cases better than the other systems and Maybe that has to do with the fact that the projection systems haven't quite kept pace with what we know. Like, we have all of these new data sources, but in many cases, the projections don't make use of them for good reasons. One, it's hard to rebuild your projection system, probably, and plug in all this new data. But also, we only have so much of a sample, you can't start using StatCast really to project players after you have one or two seasons because you don't necessarily know how repeatable these things are from season to season and what it means for a player's aging if his spin rate declines or something like that so you need a bigger sample and you also need all the data to be released in a way that you can use it with a projection system so it might just be that a lot of the things we look at from day to day aren't actually baked into the projections yet and maybe one of these years there will be a a big leap forward in that area that's true like looking at Keon Broxton, he's projected
1: on Fangraphs to be like a well below average hitter even though like he's clearly the best hitter in the National League so I don't know <laughs> why so yeah you could fold in some SAGAS information that projection would improve I have a theory also it's really difficult to examine so I haven't bothered yet but I have a theory that now more than ever we are seeing players making not quite overnight, but more changes and maybe some more significant changes to their game. It's a lot easier with a pitcher to identify. He just starts throwing a new pitch. But of course, there's the litany of swing changers, and Mm -hmm. it's been battered into our heads for a decade by, I guess I don't need to talk about the statistical people, but that whenever we overreact to any sort of small sample change, that we should always, we're making fools of ourselves, we should always just lean on the the longer track record, which is generally true, and that's what the projections are always doing, because they're only as smart as the history. But if you have a player who's suddenly doing something that seems to be very different... Maybe now more than ever, that can be a very meaningful indicator of of real change because there is mm-hmm. that much more information. So I don't know. I, we don't need to yeah. go into depth on this. Maybe this will be a podcast topic down the road. But it's right, to think yeah,
0: about. yeah. I can't tell whether there are more of those changers or whether the coverage is just so much better that we know about them now. And you have analytically inclined beat writers who are asking about these things and curious about these things and there's an audience for them maybe more so than there used to be so that could be part of it but you'd also think that there would be more of those guys because there's so much data to use to make yourself better so that is something that we're all tracking and writing about all the time All right, we should answer some emails so (laughs) (laughs) this one comes from Eric Hartman he says Hey gang, while attempting to distract myself from the crushing horrors of reality, I ended up on Miguel Cabrera's baseball reference page. I noticed that he has received at least one MVP vote every year he's been in the league. Sort of an anti-Nick Markakis. Markakis has never received an MVP vote. I was curious if there are any other players who can claim such a distinction. And I asked baseball reference data expert Hans van Sluten, who is an invaluable research assistant to me at times, To check this using their data And the only one who has an MVP vote In every year of his career is Chris Bryant Which basically doesn't (laughs) count So there are a bunch of guys who come close Who have, say, MVP votes in one less season Than they have played in the majors Such as Mike Trout, for instance Who had that first season where he wasn't good And so he didn't get an MVP vote in that season He didn't play much anyway the ones who have come closest over a long period of time, Joe DiMaggio went 12 for 13. Ted Williams went 18 for 19, which is pretty awesome. Wow. Which year did Ted Williams miss out? Let's see. 1952. Oh, uh, yeah. right, He was in Korea, I think, for almost all of that year, but not quite. So he played six games and didn't get an MVP vote. But here's the
1: incredible thing. Look at the next year. He played 37 games, and he did get an MVP vote. (laughs)
0: Yes. (laughs) Yeah, so that's really close. 18 for 19, and the only year he didn't get one was when he (laughs) barely played because he was defending our nation. So not bad. (laughs) There are some other guys who are very early in their careers and have come close. Like, even, even they haven't really liked Corey Seager's one for two, Sundergaard's one for two, Lindor's one for two, Betts is two for three, Abreu's two for three, Addison Russell's one for two, but the only ones who go a really long time really are Dimashio and Williams, and there's one interesting guy, the only non-active player who appears on this list is a player named Eddie Juhas, I hope that's how you pronounce it, who played two seasons and got one Year with an MVP vote And that is kind of curious You'd you'd think that anyone who Got an MVP vote in his first Season would get many more Seasons to keep playing And what happened to Eddie Juhasz is First of all he only got a 31st place MVP Performance in 1952 The same year that Ted Williams did not Get a vote and He was 27 he was a 27 year old rookie for the Cardinals That year a reliever almost exclusively and he pitched 99 innings with a 136 ERA plus he was pretty good and he got a 31st place MVP vote showing to show for it and then the next spring he hurt himself and had Tendinitis in his shoulder And got into two games That following year And that was it For Eddie Uhas. Never pitched again In the majors at least So that's his story And nine years later He was a Chicago district attorney <laughs> Yeah So anyway Miguel Cabrera's streak Is very impressive He is Of course We haven't really seen His decline phase yet He has played 14 years In the majors And he's gone 14 for 14 There will probably come a year when he doesn't do it. But if you had to come up with someone who could conceivably do it, Miguel Cabrera is a pretty good bet. He's a very Ted Williams-esque hitter, I suppose. He hits for average. He hits for power. He does everything. He has thus far hardly declined at all into his early 30s. So maybe he'll actually be so well-preserved and have such a reputation within the game that he can actually sustain this and and go 18 for 18 or however many years he ends up playing. So something to watch.
1: What's interesting in here is Cabrera, he's gotten that MVP vote every season, but he was not an all-star in 2003 when he was a rookie. And he had a 27th place MVP vote. He was down there among some other extremely 2003 names like (laughs) Mark Grudzelanik, Russ Ortiz, (laughs) Dontrell Willis, Luis Gonzalez. In any case, Cabrera also, he was 13th place MVP finisher in 2008, fourth place in 2009, an all star in neither season somehow. I don't know exactly (laughs) how that. works but Joe DiMaggio aside from uh, three years of military service just like Ted Williams Joe DiMaggio did make the all-star game in all of his major league seasons the one year he did not get an MVP vote was his final year when he was Mm -hmm. an all-star as a 36 year old but still I don't think anything is weirder than that Ted Williams 37 games (laughs) 110 plate appearances, (laughs) MVP vote. Although he did hit like 14 home runs that season. So good on Ted Williams. He made the most out of a little time.
0: Yeah, maybe it was just a courtesy vote. Hey, you're you're back from war for the second time. So here's an MVP (laughs) vote. All right. Question from Nick. If Aroldis Chapman suddenly showed up to camp and he used Carter Capps' ridiculous delivery, but somehow maintained his control, how unhittable would he be? I think I've heard you guys say that Caps' perceived velocity is about as fast or faster than Chapman's fastball. But how ridiculous would that delivery be with a guy who can throw 103 as it is? Would anyone be able to score runs off of him? Only thing I know for sure is that that delivery would be getting outlawed even quicker. So I wrote about Carter Cows, but I forget. What's the differential between his actual and... Perceived velocity, do you remember? Yeah,
1: I believe off the top of my head, if you just look at fastballs, it's 3.6, but over all of his pitches, he gains 3.2 miles per hour. Aroldis Chapman gains no, 1.5. Uh, yeah, I've, I've been thinking about Carter Caps <laughs> a lot lately. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Tyler Glasnow, interestingly, was a plus three without a weird Carter Caps delivery, but I think, anyway, we don't need to talk about Tyler <laughs> Glasnow right now. Okay, so Chapman with the Caps. So Caps gains 3.2 on all of his pitches, On average, Chapman gains 1.5. So in this, are we just adding caps onto Chapman or are we just take, adding 1.7? Uh, I don't know. I guess we should
0: probably just give him caps' gap, right? Because he'd be using caps' delivery and maybe there's something about Chapman's current delivery that gives him that 1.5 that he'd be losing if he switched to caps. So right. I guess okay. let's just give him caps.
1: So uh, over the last two years, Caps's average perceived velocity has been 101.5. Chapman has been 101.1. 1. So now we're going to add 1.7. Onto that, Uh I guess. So that would take him up to 102.8, which would mean that he would, oh my God. Okay. So he wouldn't be, he wouldn't be literally unhittable. But if you look at what Caps did the last time he was healthy, and oh, by the way, he's healthy again. This is going to be a nightmare for other teams. Mm -hmm. Uh, He was the most unhittable pitcher I think we've seen in baseball since at least that one year of like peak, peak super Brad Lidge. Like if you sort contact rates, for as long as we've had them. I think Lidge has the lead in this one season, and then no one else is within like five percentage points of him. I don't know exactly what he was doing, but it was just slider machine, like perfect mm. slider machine. And then Albert Pujols happened. But in any <laughs> case, so we're we're taking Chapman up to almost 103 miles per hour perceived velocity. Chapman has, of course, thrown balls that have had perceived velocities that high, and he hasn't avoided all contact. And I'm not convinced that Chapman's breaking ball is as good as Caps' is because... As I like to bring up from time to time, the last time we saw Carter Capps healthy, he uh, batter swung at 84 of his breaking balls, and they missed with 64 of those swings. So <laughs> I don't think Chapman has that kind of breaking ball. His slider is fine, but it's not Capps level. His fastball is better. He would strike out. At the
0: I would put the over-under at, what, 55% strikeouts? Is that too low? Is that too low? <laughs> that does seem like a pretty good place to set it and I might go higher yeah I think. and that's giving him exactly caps' gap and not giving him any extra credit for the Ugh. fact that he's already pretty good perceived velocity wise uh, so
1: caps was 49% strikeouts for his like 31 healthy innings and Chapman, lately he's uh, well, let's see what his numbers. the last few years Chapman has struck out 41 42 and 53 percent of his yeah. opponents so he's averaged like 44 45 percent the last three years which is consistent with his career marks so now we're giving him an extra almost two miles per hour I mean that's it's genuinely insane to think about but yeah yeah okay I would say maybe maybe the over under point is 60 percent strikeouts and you would mm-hmm. he would never give up a home run
0: Yeah. Someone asked you in your chat last week where the diminishing returns would be with fastball speed or where you get the most or least benefit from adding a tick. And you speculated what something like 105, 106, like beyond that, it probably wouldn't help that much to add one mile per hour.
1: Depends on what you mean. Like when people ask about diminishing returns, I think the The point where it makes the biggest difference is down around, like, probably 89 or 90. Yeah. So after that, the returns would begin to diminish. What I suspect was the intent of the question was, where does it basically not matter anymore? And Mm -hmm. that, I think that is around somewhere between 105 and 110. Like, if you look at Chapman's fastballs that he's ever thrown when you get up to 104, 105, it it just doesn't matter anymore. As a batter, you're basically there as a tourist observing baseball. You're not actually supposed to do anything. Although, granted, if you have Chapman out there throwing as hard as you possibly can, you would have guys choking up. But the last time we saw a batter really choke up on a Chapman pitch, he hit one of the most dramatic home runs in World Series history. So, you know, it can happen. But yeah. Chapman would average probably
0: 0. 0.5 home runs allowed per season. Mm-hmm. Okay. The polar opposite of that question comes from Connor, who says It is being reported that Jared Weaver's fastball velocity is sitting 79 to 83 during spring training thus far. What is going to be a higher number this year, the lower end of his sitting velocity divided by 10 or his ERA? So if he is sitting <laughs> 79. His ERA divided by ten would be seven point nine, and he is coming off a season where his velocity was what, like eighty one or something like that. Was he in he that range? It was eighty three. It actually eighty three. It, it perked okay. up, if you will. And he had a five point oh six ERA.
1: Yeah, you know, you know what? I don't. I've gone. I, I've gone completely around. I think Jared Weaver is fantastic. I love yeah. that he's out there throwing crap. And last <laughs> year he had an ERA of five point oh six, but the year before it was four point six four. I mean, these aren't good numbers. His ERA, his ERAs the last two years have been like 20 or 25% below average with Mm -hmm. the Angels, but he's going to the easier league. San Diego is still a relatively pitcher-friendly ballpark, even though there are more home runs. And he's he's proven, he's thrown crap for years. Like the last two years, he's had an 83 mile per hour fastball, but he's thrown his fastball less than half of the time. And his changeup is still there. His other pitches are still there. He has the worst, I think objectively, the worst fastball in baseball, but he knows it. And he is as close. We get the hypothetical ever so often about, could you be a good pitcher if you never throw a fastball? Well, Jared Weaver's trying. He's he's out there <laughs> and he's doing his best. Yeah, his, It's bad, but you, know, you have a hitter out there just gearing up for the heat. And he still has that big loopy curveball that's always been a good pitch. He still has a changeup that works somehow Mm -hmm. because you know hitters are geared up for the heater so no i don't think that weaver is on the precipice of like a an eight era because he's just never actually been
0: that bad yeah he's got the deception and the pop-ups and everything so yeah he gets by yeah i i like that he's out there i like that
1: he still has a job he i mean he shouldn't he shouldn't have a job but this is this padre's (laughs) situation but just for just for scientific reasons this is going to be good data and the fact that he's probably going to start another I don't know 50 games this season for the Padres is going to be really good for us to learn from just like how pitchers probably shouldn't hit but I'm glad that they do (laughs) all right do you want to do a stat segment? Sure. I've got something that isn't so fun, but is kind of interesting, maybe, uh, for FanGraphs, <laughs> should be published by now, but we're doing an annual series that's called the Positional Power Rankings, and I mm-hmm. was in charge of writing up shortstops, which is a privilege, I think, because shortstops are so good right now. And so this was published, I think, while we've been speaking during this podcast, and in that piece, I hypothesized something, that why don't I just get into the information now? So... You and many people are familiar with the statistic OPS Plus on Baseball Reference. There is also a T OPS Plus. I don't know what the T stands for, but what this is essentially is OPS Plus for a given split relative to the overall OPS Plus. So it's a measure of how good a player or position is offensively relative to the league offense. Understand? Everybody understands? Mm -hmm. Only Ben is on the line, so that's fine. (laughs) Let's just assume people understand. So... There's been a lot written about how we are entering or have entered a golden era of shortstops. I think people can feel it, and it's difficult to measure overall in terms of overall value. However, in the known history of people playing shortstop, at least according to Baseball Reference, last season, shortstops had their best ever offensive season. They had a TOPS plus of 96, meaning they were only 4% worse offensively than the average hitter. That's interesting. And all of the top years are from after the turn of the millennium, except for, I don't know, whatever weird thing happened in 1960 when, hey, good for short shortstops they were able to hit. So that's interesting. But it's also interesting to shift over just a little bit. And while less has been written, second basemen are coming off easily their yeah. best offensive year ever. They had a T-OPS plus of 108. That's the best in second base history. Second place, 100. So that's, I mean, as these numbers go, that is a significant lead where second baseman eight percentage points better than their next best season overall. So the theory that I am in the process of sort of superficially researching, and maybe there'll be a Fangraphs post on this since I need something to write about, is I have a theory that with defenses shifting more than ever, I think maybe the importance of range has been reduced And I think maybe the importance of agility in the middle infield has been reduced, or maybe teams are just more willing to put up with reduced agility. Mm -hmm. And that I think we all understand that a lot of major league baseball players have been shortstops before. Many were shortstops with their high school teams. Some are drafted as shortstops. One of my favorite fun facts is that when he was in his first year in the minor leagues, Jim Tomey played shortstop somehow even more embarrassing than that Michael Morse was a shortstop in the major leagues looking like Michael Morse does basically today and then players move and the players move because teams decide well they're not just not capable of playing shortstop anymore but I think that you are seeing fewer and fewer players moved from the middle infield because teams are more willing to put up with a little less athleticism in the middle infield again this is all speculative so I don't have Mm -hmm. any proof yet but I will say that Let's see, what is this search that I did? So, last year there were 27 middle infielders who played fairly regularly. I said a minimum of 400 played appearances. There were 27 shortstops or second basemen who had an OPS plus of at least 100. That is very high, although in 2007 there were 29 of them. Last year there were 27, and then the list drops off to 23, 22, 22, 21, etc. I don't need to keep reading numbers in order, but of some interest as well, last year there were 35 middle infielders who were at least six feet tall. And that is the most ever by four. 2015, there were 31. 2013, there were 31. And so on down the line. Of course, players in general have gotten taller over Mm -hmm. time. I have not conducted all of the necessary research for this because I did this in four minutes in advance (laughs) of the podcast, realizing that I needed something to talk about. However, I suspect, I have not yet proven, but I suspect... Middle infielders are relatively taller than they've ever been, which would, I think, seem to support the belief that middle infielders are also just being moved less than they've ever been. And so mm-hmm. if you have the best players being moved off of middle infield positions less often, then of course the numbers are going to reflect that those players are better. And so that's interesting. And so we're yeah. going to see where, where this goes. But I know there's been talk about Carlos Correa won't stick at shortstop or Corey Seeger won't stick at shortstop or... Uh, Whoever else is good at shortstop, there's always talk that maybe he won't stick, except for Francisco Lindor, who I think should be considered the inventor of the shortstop position, I guess. (laughs) Uh But, you know, Seager is still very young. Correa is still very young. I don't know how long they're actually going to last at the position, but I don't think that there's any thought that they're going to be moved anytime soon. The Astros actually moved Alex Bregman to third to allow Correa to continue playing the position, so I think this is this is kind of a thing, and we're going to see how they age because they are still so young, and shortstops are also terrifyingly young as a group. But I think that this is one of the sort of unforeseen consequences of how defenses have been aligned in recent years. That if you if you shove everyone over to a hitter's strong side, then all of a sudden individual players don't need to cover so much ground. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Plausible. Good theory. Look forward to seeing the numbers. (laughs) All right. Let's take a question from Adam, who says, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on Ken Rosenthal's article from this week about Brady Anderson's role with the Orioles. I've been on board with the recent trend of hiring former players like Dan Heron into strategist roles, but this represents an interesting view of what can happen when the player looms large in franchise history and they're hired by ownership, not by the front office. Anderson is appointed as a VP, but carries out a much different role I think than most with that title. Despite the issues he appears to have caused with players and coaches, it has seemingly had limited impact on the on-field product so far. Sample size of one, But are the concerns Rosenthal highlights reasonable ones to have about any of the former players taking on these strategist roles? Or can I just dump all of the blame on Angelos for creating a particularly difficult situation? I don't know if you've read this article. It's novella length. It's like (laughs) 10 times longer than any other Ken Rosenthal article. But basically, it's about the fact that Brady Anderson doesn't really report to anyone and seems to have more leeway as a result of that. Like he has a Locker in the clubhouse where he gets changed And he is involved in acquisitions and negotiations But also coaches anyone in the system whenever he wants And just sort of, uh, I don't know if loose cannon is accurate But he can just kind of go where he wants and do what he wants And he's only accountable to Angelos And I don't know that any of the concerns in that article Which, as Adam alludes to here, haven't really hurt the Orioles that much Presumably, they've been a good baseball team But I don't know whether this would apply to Dan Heron or to most of the players in this sort of hybrid front office field staff role because most of them are not hired by the owner. They are, in many cases, not players who were even with the organization or were not with the organization for a long time. They're probably not quite as I don't know if you can call Brady Anderson storied in Orioles history, but he he was definitely there for a long time and he had some standout seasons. So a lot of them are not that, you know, like I don't know that Dan Heron has that kind of level of prominence with the Diamondbacks, for instance, but I think most of them are just hired by the GM and there isn't really any confusion about the hierarchy and how they fit in and According to Rosenthal's article, it just sort of sounds like Anderson is kind of a strange guy and there are lots of quotes in there about how he is uh, atypical in a lot of ways. So I think probably we can't really generalize from his position and I don't know that anyone has exactly his position, so it might just be a unique situation. I do wonder about the motivation level of former players turned analysts because essentially every player who had any kind of major league career is a many times multi-millionaire at this point and i don't know what they get paid for their front office roles but i assume it's some fraction of what they would have made as a player and if they've saved their money and invested wisely they probably don't need to work and so I wonder, I'm sure most of them are very motivated and they like being around baseball and they like helping players and they're as invested in their job as any of us is, if not more. But I wonder, like, there's only some level of grunt work that you're willing to do, presumably, if you are already rich and you've already achieved a lot in this sport and you don't have to do work if you don't want to do work like maybe some of them have aspirations to be a gm or get into ownership or who knows what and then there's definitely a benefit to them working their way up but i also wonder maybe they just kind of keep them away from tasks that are boring and rote and unpleasant and so it doesn't become an issue but I wonder if it ever does like I know that Dan Heron mentioned when I talked to him on an episode of Effectively Wild that it was important to him that he have the right role and he'd be able to spend a lot of time at home with his family and his kids and that sort of thing so maybe if you're going after one of these players you have to be willing to make some concessions that you couldn't make to the typical person
1: I would hope that when you are hiring one of these former players that they're sufficiently screened and vetted that you are only hiring someone who is at least reasonably motivated and not just looking for something to yeah. help the player stay occupied and stave off post career alcoholism I think <laughs> right. also moving to an earlier point I don't know where the lower threshold is for being storied but Brady Anderson does have <laughs> at least one story I guess <laughs> of having been an Oriole a pretty well-known yep. story of dingers Every yes. other day So uh-huh. that's that's something I read most of the article I didn't internalize it In a way where I, I read it and I thought This is very well Sourced and detailed But this doesn't seem like The sort of thing I'm going to write about So I kind of just yeah. Superficially read it I, I understand that From a player standpoint You are well within Your right to question Exactly what that Individual's role is Because the clubhouse Is considered something Of a sacred room For the players And it would be Only natural to think That Anderson is Sort of a mole which, mm-hmm. of course, you can't. You wouldn't be inclined to trust him right away, especially because you, uh, players might not have that strong pre-existing relationship with the player. But it sort of touches on something that I've also wondered about, specifically earlier with the Mariners having Edgar Martinez as the hitting coach, where ordinarily you have coaches or advisors who are sort of... More ephemeral I guess They don't Mm -hmm. have a whole lot of job security We've seen teams cycle through pitching coaches And hitting coaches and managers Like it's nothing But Mm -hmm. if you were a Mariners player And you were getting instruction from Edgar Martinez It could put you in the unusual position of realizing That you could be less secure in your job Than he (laughs) is in his Yeah, What would be the exit strategy If you were the Mariners Or in this case the Orioles being like, okay, this person is not doing a good job. However, this person has been very important. Again, yeah. Edgar more than Brady Anderson, but whatever. <laughs> Anderson's still a somewhat beloved Oriole. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I don't know how you get out of that. And this is one of the, I think, under-discussed complications of hiring that former team icon. Like uh-huh. if if Tony Gwynn had been a hitting coach for the Padres, which hopefully he, he wasn't, because I don't remember that happening off the top of my head. I know he... <laughs> manage at SDSU, but it's one of the the downsides of having like Barry Bonds around or just any sort of former important player. It's great to have them around as sort of like a roving instructor or like maybe they can show up at spring training. And maybe just maybe if you think that they're going to be great coaches or advisors, that's important. But I don't know if Edgar Martinez is good at his job, but I sure as hell know that the Mariners have to hope that he is and he's been around for long enough now that I mean I guess maybe that means he's good and the team is hit well but like I have no idea what the separation is going to look like and the Mariners really have to hope that it's on Edgar's terms and he just decides I've had enough and then he's done because you can't you can't
0: fire him. (laughs) Yeah, good question. Good point. All right, let's take this one from Andrew. You are a lifelong baseball fan. You played in high school, and although you were good, you were not offered any scholarships or drafted, so you stopped playing. Let's say you're watching a game one day in your early 20s, and you start noticing that you can predict not just every pitch, but the exact location and velocity for every pitch from every pitcher in every game. You can only foresee each pitch as the pitcher comes set. What are the odds of you making the major leagues as a player, and or how good would you be, Alternatively, how likely are you to get a job in some kind of consulting position with a club? So
1: I sent back a quick email on this, but I think that your odds of getting a job are would be extremely high, yeah. because, uh, provided you can in some way convey your knowledge right. and show people how to how to identify things. Now, if yes. it's just like this mental thing that clicks for you and you have no explanation for it, well, then you can't do anything. You can't, because yeah, even right.
0: if they give you a bench job, you can't just yell, slider, lower it away. <laughs> like, that's not, you can't right. do that. The, the pitcher would throw I, the ball you know, you. there There have been times in the past when teams have tried to relay signals from the stands, or at least it's been speculated that they've done that. And if you really did have someone with this almost supernatural power, I wonder whether they'd come up with some scheme. Now, you're not getting this knowledge until the pitcher comes set, so that doesn't leave a lot of time. But if there's some way that you could make a motion from the outfield or something, I mean, inevitably it would be noticed, I'm sure. And if it was always right, then something would have to be done (laughs) about that. But you would try to exploit that somehow. But yeah, I I don't know what you could do. You couldn't really just shout out from the bench.
1: Right. And as far as being a player, I don't know quite, uh, how to answer that? Because I didn't, I didn't hit for myself when I played because I was bad. Uh, I I only knew how to pitch and hold a baseball bat, and I only kind of knew how to do that. So I don't know exactly how much benefit it would give a decent high school baseball player to know exactly what's coming and where it's going to be. But I do know that I my school had a pretty good pitching machine. Ten or fifteen years ago, and it was one of those machines you could program whatever pitch in whatever location at whatever velocity. And so the coaches would sometimes mess around and show us like eighty-five mile per hour perfect curveballs. And I don't, I don't care (laughs) how much you know, you can't do anything with that. As certainly not when you're like a sixteen-year-old idiot playing for like a Division Five San Diego high school. So you would need to be very. Talented I guess it would be of Great benefit to like a Jonathan Scope where you're like hey your approach Problem at least mm-hmm. no longer matters You have the natural talent go hit the ball But assuming that this undrafted High schooler does not have the raw ability Of a Jonathan scope or Someone similarly undisciplined then I I don't think that you Would have a job you this would be of The greatest significance for someone who was At least good enough to be
0: drafted I think right Yes it wouldn't help us <laughs> So let's wrap up with a couple paired questions about rotations. One from Matt who says, if we assume pitchers have their best results the first two times through a lineup, would it be beneficial to a team to set up a rotation that has two pitchers only pitch two times through the order in tandem, basically have two starting pitchers take on every game split in half. So game one, you have pitcher a and B game two, C and D game three, E and F game four, G and H He says, I think it could be done in a four-game rotation with fewer innings being pitched. Also, teams could win arbitration cases based on the fact that teams in arbitration still use innings pitch and wins to their advantage. The arbitration process is a little bit behind the times when it comes to advanced stats and stuck in the precedent system. Teams could have smaller bullpens as well, and they would have to. So non-traditional tandem starter rotation, the kind of thing that we've seen. Maybe the Astros were doing that in the minor leagues a few years ago. Maybe they still are. Do you think that that could help a team? Will we see it? I was expecting a second-to-pair question. Yes, there's going to be one.
1: We sort of saw the Rockies mess around with something similar. What was it, a 65-pitch minimum or maximum for their starters some years back? The problem there was that all of them were bad, so they just (laughs) wanted to basically... Have them stop pitching on their own terms as opposed to being forced out. This is the kind of thing that I think is an inevitability like legal marijuana. But (laughs) it's one of those things where it's not necessarily going to happen overnight. Running some numbers, last year we saw fewer pitchers throwing to hitters for the fourth time through the order than ever. That is not a surprise. This has been a recent trend. Teams are paying more and more attention to the times through the order splits. I know the Rays have been particularly strict about limiting certain pitchers to like two trips through the order. So the Rays are Mm -hmm. already kind of getting there and you would expect a team like the Rays to get there. There are twin difficulties here. One, you would need eight pretty good pitchers like you're asking for something beyond just good reliever capability because good relievers are good like one time through the order or, or maybe for one or two innings at a time and here you're looking for eight not like top of the line started pitchers, but eight pretty good pitchers who have at least three pitches so they can pitch to hitters on both sides. Mm -hmm. And so that would be a challenge. And of course, the other challenge, which is always the problem with something like this is player buy-in, because uh, as the question asker whose name I forgot noted, you could in theory be messing with somebody's earning capability because if arbitration held the this usage against them. Well, we've seen players complain that they don't get a reward in arbitration because they're not getting saves. We just had an issue with Dylan and Batances and the Yankees because arbitration didn't reward him fairly. And so players would not be financially motivated to accept this. But mm-hmm. it is something that's going to happen because starts are getting shorter and shorter. That is unlikely to end because mm-hmm. it only makes sense. And as starts get shorter and shorter, then you're going to need more and more relievers. The rosters are limited in scope, so you're going to need more and more long relievers. And so it only makes sense that you would end up with short starters and longer long relievers. And so I would think within five or 10 years, we're going to see something like this at least semi-temporarily show up in the major leagues. I don't know who's going to do it, but probably
0: a team like the Rays would be my my pick now. Mm-hmm. Okay. And related non-traditional rotation question from Matt. The Mets have seven starting pitchers who have proven themselves to be at minimum competent and viable options at the major league level. They have zero pitchers who seem to be capable in current condition of throwing 200 innings. Are the Mets starting pitchers good candidates for the team to try the college slash NPB model of assigning of day of the week to their pitchers? They can name Thor the Friday night starter, with DeGrom throwing Saturday and Mats on Sunday. That allows Harvey, Gesellman, Lugo, and Wheeler to split up Monday to Thursday and offers built-in rest for recovering arms like Wheeler and Harvey. By dividing the season across seven pitchers, the team is only asking for 23 or so starts from each. But because of off days, we can expect 25 to 27 starts from Thor, DeGrom, and the Sunday starter while the other four carver the remainder. This could help limit their innings and keep them fresh for a stretch run, but it also means less of the top guys than normally possible. 160 innings of Cindergard is not as valuable as 200 innings of him, but he's never managed more than last year's 183, so it might not matter. Plus, having a standing Friday engagement sounds kind of awesome. Appointment viewing. It would be kind of fun. <laughs> yeah, it's
1: it would be a nice idea because you would know exactly when Syndergaard is pitching. But yeah, you know we've seen Syndergaard; he just made thirty starts and he had a only minor elbow problem. Degrom has thrown a bunch of innings in the past. I think that what I could see is more likely is sort of doing the the six man rotation deal, which the Blue Jays used for a time last year, because clearly there are Mets who need to be handled a little lighter than Mm -hmm. usual and you do want to be careful with Syndergaard who's trying to throw the ball 107 miles per hour this season yes which oh by the way that's going to be awesome (laughs) I don't think that this would call for this the seven-man rotation college style just because the Mets are in a competitive situation where they are maybe already a few games worse than the Nationals and they're going to need to maximize what they get out of Syndergaard and, and DeGrom who seem to be their best and most reliable pitchers I don't think that you could really sell losing seven or eight starts from both of those pitches because they are just too important. And as much as Gesellman is interesting or Seth Lugo is interesting, uh, realistically, we know very little about how good they actually are. Lugo Mm -hmm. just has this curveball that spins a lot. I don't know what the hell we're supposed to do with that. And Gesellman has a very small sample success against bad teams after not being that good in the minor leagues. So it's a a fun thought. And I love the idea of being able to say like, well, it's Friday night, so we're going to go see Noah Syndergaard. That's great. But I think that would work against the Mets more than it would work for them. So... I'm, I'm sorry to say that, but if they had pitchers who were worse than Syndergaard and DeGrom, <laughs> hey, well, then that's interesting, and that would, that would be something to pursue.
0: Yeah, I just don't know if we know quite enough about what makes pitchers... I mean, we know that pitching more means a higher risk of getting hurt, but I don't know exactly if we have the greatest handle on, well, what if you throw 160 instead of 200, does that help you a lot? Is it just that you're throwing fewer pitches or does the rest between starts really help repair you and make you safer than you otherwise would be? I don't know how great a handle teams have on that. I definitely don't have a great handle on that. So I could see if there were good research behind it. And if you were sure that you could just waltz to your division title, like if it was the Indians, let's say, or some hypothetical team that had what seemed to be a really clear path to the division title and you just wanted to make sure that your best starters were available when you got to the playoffs, then maybe if they were young and amenable and malleable and you could convince them to do it and they wouldn't be too upset about it. So there could be a situation where it would make sense. But yeah, I mean, they're going to need every win they can to win this division. And their top couple guys are so good that without having really solid evidence that it would either make them better when they are pitching or keep them safer in the long term. Not sure I could commit to this kind of idea, although yeah. I do like the idea of just knowing who's pitching on any given day. <laughs> it's a Syndergaard day. It's a DeGrom day. That's, that sounds fun. <laughs> Thor day. Sounds like it's actually a day of the week. <laughs> yeah. All right. So we will wrap it up there. You can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com/slash wild. Five listeners who have already done so include Alex Chrysafouli, Brian Burke, Tyler Larson, Beth Davies Stofka, and Andrew Mearns. You can also join our Facebook group at Facebook.com groups slash effectively wild and rate and review and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes. Keep your questions coming via email at podcast at or by messaging us through Patreon. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for editing assistance. We'll be back on Friday with previews for the Tigers and the Rays. Talk to you then.
1: do What do really what do